to the book of Proverbs as we begin a new series this evening. We will continue for a time. I suspect we'll take a break at some point. Proverbs is a big book, and to mind the depths of its contents may be, for all of us, your pastor included, a wearisome yet joyful endeavor indeed. Uh, There are a number of sections. We will look at those sections as uh, we look at an overview later. There will be a series of what we might call introductory sermons. The first one this evening, entitled The Beginning of Wisdom, it is an exposition of the first few verses of chapter 1 in the book of Proverbs and a handful of other verses as well. Uh, Then we'll move on to the place of wisdom. Where can it be found? The plea of wisdom. How ought we ask for it? The themes of the book of Proverbs and then wisdom is the Messiah. It is Christ himself, the wisdom of God revealed to men. But tonight we will start at the beginning. It's a good place to start. You can follow along with me as I read from Proverbs chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. Here it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then uh, you can turn to chapter 9, verse 10. Kids, you'll detect a theme from this verse and then verse I'll read next from Psalm 111. Psalm, sorry, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, I'll give you one guess how Psalm 111 Uh, Verse, excuse me, 10 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise, see here he links wisdom and worship, his praise endures forevermore. It's there I'll start reading, and I will pray for God's richest blessing of the preaching of his word. Lord, would you grant us wisdom and understanding that we would not only come to your word as students about what it means, what does it mean, but, Lord, how we are to live in light of this glorious revelation, that we might be, through your word, conformed more and more after the pattern of the one we call the wisdom of God, Christ himself, our Redeemer. We pray then in his name. Amen. This evening, as we look at this topic of the beginning of wisdom, I want to do so under three simple headings. And I want to talk about the relationship of wisdom with fear, or the fear of the Lord, wisdom and worship, and then the two paths that are open to us, wisdom or folly. And so those will serve as our three headings this evening. Then uh, The first, excuse me, wisdom and fear. The second, wisdom and worship. And the third, wisdom. Or folly, bear with me, 
I think there's a tree growing out of my ears. There's so much pollen in my head. I can't get it out. Wisdom and fear. Here, in particular, the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom, like all great virtues that we find in Scripture, has an entry point. It has a beginning. But before we talk about what that beginning is, we need to first ask ourselves, when we see it, is it something that we want? First, it is right for me to say that wisdom is worth pursuing. And it is worth pursuing because it is a priceless treasure. It is beautiful. And we must come to see it as beautiful. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon has a dream. And in that dream, the Lord approaches Solomon, the son of David, the great king of Israel, now Solomon the king. And he asks Solomon, ask of me anything and I'll give it to you. Solomon responds, verse 8 of 1 Kings chapter 3, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. Now this statement comes at the end of Solomon remarking of the things that he learned at his father's feet. And one of the things that Solomon learned was the Lord's faithfulness to David. Was David always faithful to the Lord? No. He was guilty of some pretty serious sins. Sins that wrecked his home. But one of the things that David did well was to show Solomon the value, the beauty, the worthiness of wisdom. And so when God comes to Solomon and asks, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? Solomon says, I want wisdom. Why does he ask the Lord this? Because he also knew that wisdom comes from the Lord. If we are to have wisdom, we must first understand the fount from which it comes. And so... Following Solomon's request, the Lord responds in verse 11. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for long life for yourself, nor have asked for riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. That is what is upright. Behold, the Lord says, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. Now you may say, well, when is the Lord going to come to me and ask me what I want for? Probably because he knows better. But if he were to come and ask you and you were to say wisdom, do you know what he would say? I have given you the Proverbs. For what Solomon does is he distills, not only in the book of Proverbs, but the book of Song of Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes, 
all of which are inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have the wisdom of Solomon, which is the wisdom of God. And so what we must do, if we wish to be wise, is begin at the beginning, which is first to see the value of it, to see the beauty of it. Why did Eve sin? What was that first thing we read of as a response to the fruit that the serpent offered her? She saw and it was a delight to her eyes. We do not read of Adam and his wife going to the tree of life and looking at its fruit and going, wow. Brothers and sisters, this is an issue of the heart. Which is why throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon and other writers incorporate language, vivid imagery. Even wisdom itself is referred to as a beautiful woman. Why? Because Solomon wants to capture the attention of the young men that he's teaching. Wisdom is beautiful. It is beautiful because it promotes blessing in the life of the Christian because of the place from which it comes. It is beautiful because it comes from a God of truth and goodness and beauty. It begins with the fear of the Lord. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Children, when you hear this phrase, what do you think? I remember what I thought when I thought of fearing my father. I know what it feels like when I've disobeyed. (laughs) And the dread and the terror that creeps into my heart when I have sinned and it is required that there is some kind of corporal correction. I was terrified. That is one of the elements of the fear of the Lord, to fear his righteous judgments. But that is not what what Solomon is referring to here. Rather, what he is referring to as the fear of the Lord is a right understanding, a, a comprehension that God is above all other gods to be worshipped and adored. It is to be jealous for his glory and the lifting high of his name. To hate the profaneness that men use his name for. Righteous fear is the position of holy awe before the one who is your king, your lord, your creator. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Righteous fear is not only a position of holy awe, it is love and devotion. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loves us. Now, when I spoke of punishment, I'm speaking of the the kind of admonition the Lord gives to his children so that they might be saved from eternal judgment. We do not fear that. Children, maybe you will understand it this way. When things are not right in the house, you've blown it. 
You have disobeyed. You've lied. You've done something. You're caught. And you see that look in your parents' eye of displeasure, of anger against your sin. And you, A, are terrified of what comes next. But in addition to this, there is that understanding that there is a lack of peace between you and your parent. And you want it just to be okay, but something has to happen first. Sin must be dealt with. And then once the sin is dealt with and the arms are open wide and maybe there's tears. Usually there's tears. And there's hugging and there's affection. That fear grows rightly into what? Thank you. Now you may say, "Um, no, I'm sorry. But I look back on my life as a child. And if it were not for the holy displeasure of my father working itself out on me, I can't imagine what I would have grown up to be like. It is an apprehension and understanding that all of what God does is right and we love him for the way in which he works himself out in creation, in providence. It is love and it is devotion. Righteous fear is devotion to the Lord. In Luke 9, verse 23, we read, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Righteous fear is devotion. Whatever, Lord, you ask me to do, I will do it. Whatever you ask me to say, I will say it. Just do not cast me off. Let me follow you. Righteous fear is eternal perspective. Ecclesiastes 9. What profit has the worker from all in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he also put eternity into their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You and I, as I've said in my series from Revelation, are to think of the last day of human history and we are to say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I wish to be on the right side of Christ. Wisdom gets you there. I do not mean by works of the law. For Christ himself is our wisdom. What I mean is as we work our faith out in fear and trembling, there are many creeks, gullies, paths that we must cross over. And if we cannot build a bridge in wisdom, we cannot cross it righteously. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It is to delight in the one who gives it. And then it is to what? What does Solomon do? Lord, give me wisdom. He asks for it. Just give it to me. Lord, of all the things for which I could ask, give me wisdom. And God grants it. 
How does he do that? Secondly, let's look at wisdom and worship. Wisdom and piety, that is, a pursuit of a holy life, a life that is hidden in Christ, a life in which the character of God is manifested in us as we read the law word of God and we say, whatever God tells me to do, I will do it. Wisdom and a righteous life go hand in hand. And where is a righteous life tended? What is the nursery, plant agriculture term, what is the nursery of the holy, wise, pious life? Well, that's why I read from Psalm 111. And in fact, Psalm 111 ends with the fruit that comes with the action of what is done in Psalm 111. And what is happening? Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. Where? In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. So on and so on. The psalmist is reflecting upon the one whom we are to behold. And remember this principle, you become what you behold. You become like the thing you worship or the one you worship. And if you worship God, you become righteous and holy as he is holy. In fact, Asaph, in that blessed psalm where he looks at the world and he is confused by what feels like the inverse of what God has said will happen since he is the king of heaven and earth. He sees the righteous flourishing and the, the wicked flourishing and the righteous perishing. The, uh, the unrighteous are, are wealthy and the righteous are poor. And he says, if, if this would have continued, I would have lost, in essence, my grasp upon God's decrees. And then he says what? Until I entered into the sanctuary of God. And then it is there that I discern their true end. The seedbed, the nursery of wisdom, which is like a little sapling when it begins, grows in the sanctuary of God. Here. It's here in worship. Now, this is not another passive-aggressive campaign by the pastor to get you to come to church on Sunday. That's not my desire. I mean, I want you here in worship. I'll tell you straight. I don't need to do passive-aggressive. You should be here. And parents, when you think of your children, in fact, there's a great example. I saw it earlier in the back of the sanctuary. They're literal, are they grapevines? Who brought those? There were, there were plants in the sanctuary. I should have put them up here so you could see them. Now, those plants aren't meant to grow in here. You are. Those plants are meant to be put in the dirt, someone's house. I don't know whose they are. You don't have to tell me now, obviously. That would not be fitting. But you and I, this is where we grow. The Puritans referred to Lord's Day worship as the market day of the soul. You know what it's like to go to farmer's market, right? It's hard to not be amazed by the things that are there. The beautiful goods, the artisanal cheese, which is so expensive you can only buy so little. But it's the good stuff. It's not food lion. 
It's the things that people have poured blood and sweat and tears to. And when you go there, you are meant to get all that you need for the week that is to come. That is what the Puritans meant. You come to that place where God fills up your basket with good, beautiful things, and then it sustains you as you are launched into the world. This is where wisdom is nurtured. A wise man, a wise woman, a child who is growing in wisdom is one who sings, who prays, who worships. The sanctuary of God is the nursery of the wise soul. And the actions that we do here of sowing wisdom in the dwelling place of God reaps a harvest of righteousness. I remember as a child, my parents, we would go to these retreats in a place, I think it was a college, or, and I can't even remember the details. Ben Lippin was the name of it. And it was a college campus where many churches, PCA churches at that time, would go and they would do a conference. And the only thing I remember is, number one, not wanting to go with the other kids because I was too scared to leave my parents' side. And number two, was sweating on my father's shoulder while he held me in that outdoor pavilion because it was the middle of summer in Georgia as the teacher taught. My earliest memories of being in the covenant community is drooling and sweating on my father's shoulder. You know, my dad could have said, it ain't worth it. I'm just going to get drooled and sweat on. But his faithfulness to hold me there when I was too scared to go with the other kids, that is the legacy of faithfulness. At this last Presbyterian meeting, I'm sitting at lunch with a dear pastor friend of mine, Matt Holst. And he's sitting there, as he's at the lunch table, and he has one of the children of one of the families who's visiting at Presbytery. And he's holding this kid burping this kid, which was probably a bad idea, but how do you not pick up the little kids? And they're sitting there at lunch, we're talking, and all of a sudden, out it comes. (laughs) That kid will not remember. And I'm sure that whatever was in there that came out will come out of the shirt and the tie that he was wearing. But that is... The covenant community at life, in life together, and what God is building when the saints come together for worship is something that the world cannot, cannot reproduce. Wisdom is like that little sapling that you buy and you bring it home from the nursery and you put it in the yard and you don't just put the sapling out there. What do you do? I was talking with Spencer about this the other day. What do you do with your children? You take the the wire, at least this is how I remember it. You take the wire, you put stakes in the ground, and you make little snips of green rubber hose. You put the hose around the wire, and then you take that whole thing, and you shore up the little sapling. Because what do you want it to do? You don't want it to grow this way or that way. You want it to grow up, tall. What do those guides represent? 
the wise sayings of God in Scripture. And sometimes you have to go out there and tighten them or pull them one way or the other. But the goal is that we might grow up to be, as Scripture says, mighty trees still bearing green growth in old age. But what are we planted in? We are planted in the wisdom of God. We are planted in the word. Wisdom from worship is the fruit of sowing in the dwelling place of our Father. So parents, listen. I know, I know you look at your children and go, I don't see the growth. But you know what they say about ivy the first year? It sleeps or something. It creeps and then it leaps. Something like that. It lies dormant sometimes. And you sometimes look at your children and go, I have no idea what's going to happen to this one. But what do you do? You make sure to plant them in the good soil. And over time, what God says, even in his word, is train up a child in the way that you, they should go. And <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and when they are older, they will not depart from it. It comes in worship. And then that leads me to my last point. It is wisdom or folly. Just as there is a beginning in wisdom, there is a beginning in folly. If the beginning of wisdom is rightly beholding the glory of God and saying, whatever you say is gospel truth, whatever you tell me to do, I will do it with joy. I will follow you wherever you go. Folly is the antithesis to this. If wisdom is the pursuit of the Lord's glory and the application of his word law in all things, folly is the inverse. Now after, excuse me, man, I'm struggling tonight. After Solomon asks for wisdom and the Lord grants it, there is actually a test of the wisdom that God gives to him. And it comes just three chapters after Solomon is given the gift. When Solomon asks for wisdom, the Lord says, here it is. And then there is a situation in which he is sitting as judge over Israel, and two women come to him. Both of them are adulterous women. They're harlots. And they are arguing over possession of a child. And while they are before him, Samuel hears the case And then he gives a very wise response. Excuse me. He tells them this. Cut the child in half. And give each woman a piece of the child. Do you hear that, kids? Is that a right answer? Is that actually what Solomon was going to do? No. That's what we do now. In a culture where there is no wisdom but folly, we divide and we cut and we maim children because of the lack of love of parents. What Solomon is endeavoring to do is suss out the true heart of the true mother. And so he says, cut the child in half and give a half to each of the women. And the mother, well, one of the women, not to play my hand too quickly, says... Let the other woman have the child. Just let the child live. And what does Solomon say? Take the child and give it to the woman 
that wanted to spare the child's life. What is the value of wisdom in an age of lawlessness? I want you to think not only of the value of wisdom for yourself. Solomon is providing and promoting peace in the kingdom. And in some sense, it benefits himself because he is seen as a wise king. But who has actually benefited in this case? The woman, who is really the mother, and the child, who is not killed. Do you want to know how to be a lover of neighbor? A friend and a benefit to the ones you live among? Get wisdom. You know, I heard several... It always happens when you go to Presbyterian, you hear licensure or ordination questions. And one of them, what is the, what is the enduring principle of the um, civil law of Israel now? You know what the enduring application is? The love of neighbor. God takes the whole of his law and says, this is how you do it in real life. And how do you get from the summary of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, to the parapet around the roof? Do not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. How do you get from there to there? You follow the wise understanding of the mind and heart of God. Why do you put it? Do you know what a paraput is, kids? It's a fence. It's a fence. In fact, one of a, a great modern example of this is when my parents decided to dig a pool. There is an ordinance in Georgia. It's a state ordinance. It's a law, in fact, that if you dig a pool in ground, you must, you must before that pool is open and you put water in it, you must put a fence around that pool. Why do you think that is? Because someone's kids or animals, may fall into that pool and die. Who then is culpable? Who is liable? Well, if you don't have a fence up, it's manslaughter. If you do, it prevents liability. What God is saying to his people throughout the scriptures is, this is the way you ought to live. And if we jettison wisdom and we seek to go after folly, not only are we endangering ourselves, but we are no good to our neighbors. We cannot help them to live righteous lives. We cannot defend their person. We cannot defend their souls. In fact, if you were to walk into Lady Folly's house, remember, she's there. She's out of, outside the door and she's saying, come on in. Now, Lady Folly is not a good woman. She's beautiful. But if you were to step through her door, it is though you were to walk into an open grave. There is no place to step because the whole of her domain is a bottomless pit. It is the abyss. It is the grave. It is condemnation. And what we have seen all around us are a lot of young men and young women who've heard the call of folly. They turn the handle to the door and they go into their demise. Wisdom is not just reaping the benefits for oneself. It is saying, once we have got it, to those who do not have it, come here. Where would you invite them? You invite them to that place where the knowledge of God is rightly dispensed. 
Folly is the rejection to worship God as creator and redeemer. So I leave you then with this final exhortation. And it begins with a question. Do you wish to be wise? Do you wish to be wise? I think all of us would say, well, yes. Maybe not all the time. When the temptations of sin arise, all sin, as R.C. Sproul would say, is cosmic treason. It is a very violation of the reality that God has established, his created moral order. Do you wish to be wise? Do you wish to know how best to love God and love neighbor? Then we must, like Mary, sit at the feet of the great rabbi, the great teacher. Do you wish to be wise? Then you must be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that does not mean that those who do not know Christ are all only ever fools. Because there is truth that God has left to the world to discover even at times by accident. Even a fool is not only ever only always foolish. Just like those who know wisdom are not only ever wise. I make foolish mistakes. And so the pursuit of wisdom is not one and zero. Have it or don't have it. As I said, it's like a little sapling growing over time. Do you wish to be wise? Then you must plant yourself in the rich soil of God's revelation. For what good is intellect if it denies the lordship of Jesus Christ? What good is power If it is wasted on vain things. You see we live among a people who have wasted their lives. In the pursuit of temporary pleasure, power and wealth. But at the end of the day they have fallen deep into the pit of folly's wretched house. How do you get wisdom? Here's the steps. First, see it as beautiful. Ask God... To give you a distaste for the forbidden fruit. Folly. Ask God that you might see his glory, his grace, and the things of his word as valuable and precious and a delight. See it for what it is and then say, Lord, please give it to me. Pray for it. Ask as Solomon did. And then, having prayed for it, do not just sit, but search out the mine where it can be found. And do not stop searching until you have found it. We can mine minerals. Job even reflects upon this. There are many things that men can do and accomplish in this world, but the one thing that they cannot do and cannot accomplish is mine wisdom from the stuff of earth. It must come from God. And God is not stingy. He will give it to those who ask for it, but you must sincerely ask for it. Plunder the fountain, dig the mines, search the scriptures, and ask that God might make you wise. Let's pray.